Welcome to Functional Design Enclosure. I am Nate Jones. And I'm Christoph Newman. We're here to help you use closure and functional programming to make your everyday life as a developer less frustrating and more fulfilling. That's right. Every week we get together and we talk about closure. If you are new to this podcast, we recommend you go way back to episode one, tune in from there, or go to closuredesign.club and you can see all the different series that we do because we like to do series on the show. And speaking of series, since episode 101, we've been in our Sportify series. And in Sportify, we are trying to make sports highlight videos so that we can flood social media with Sportify, Sportify, Sportify everywhere. (laughs) So many highlights. So many highlights. So good. All the broken arms. I mean, all the best uh, points scored in the end zone uh, basket thing, right? (laughs) Crossing the line. The right one. (laughs) All the best line crossings. Ever in the shortest amount of time. Okay, and so we started by exploring this using our REPL. We figured it out. We used this REPL-connected editor exploration process. Then from there, we created an end-to-end process, which we called our tracer bullet, which was this minimalist, very imperative, full sequence of that. And now, now we're at this new place. We have something that fully works end-to-end. we created tracer bullet right yes we did and that tracer bullet is now has now uh been fired and and we've we've been creating many many highlights uh well many highlight reels our boss keeps sending us things through the asynchronous message bus (laughs) our email and uh and there we go we keep making new ones but every once in a while we keep uh hitting bugs how is that even possible? I guess the tracer bullet uh, misfires every now and again, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or hang fires. <laughs> sort of starts to fire and then doesn't really fire. Yeah, it's it's funny that, you know, code that is working or has worked many times suddenly stops working. Like the nerve, you know? <laughs> I mean, we're good programmers, right? I like to think of us as good programmers. How could this possibly happen? I mean, I don't remember programming that bug. How on earth did it get in there? <laughs> did that intern sw- get back in, sneak back in and and do some programming? I don't know. That's right. Uh, Al- Alice, the lovely intern, she snuck in and she said, hey, this is, uh, I want my old job back. <laughs> While we're looking into this and trying to figure it all out, it does make me kind of wish, gosh, I-, I wish we had more tests, right? I mean, yeah. What was this? What was this crazy quixotic quest where we thought we could do REPL-driven development? I mean, we really blew it. We should have done test-driven development instead, right? The one true right way to develop all software applications. What were we thinking, <laughs> Nate? What were we thinking? Uh, okay, so you're going from a tracer bullet to a silver bullet, apparently, <laughs> trying to solve all the problems at once. <laughs> nice. Yes, I do yes. believe test-driven development would have made this podcast series much, much shorter. We would probably would already be done, and, uh, and we'd be out of a job. <laughs> but no, we had to go explore. I don't think these things are actually intention, though, right? Like, it's a, this is a little bit of an artificial dichotomy of the REPL-driven development versus test-driven development. I, I know it brings this image into our mind of two people trying to pull on the steering wheel at the same time. Who's the driver? Is the REPL the driver? It's a test the driver, right? And we're going to veer off the road and crash. But uh, in my mind, it's very different points in the process. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, the REPL is is much more about exploration and trying to figure out what you need to build. And and and, and that and that's a really important thing. You don't want to start writing tests around some design that you haven't solidified yet. And you don't know the design until you play with the play with the APIs and play with the database. And you get you got to run your fingers through the data. You got to run, run your fingers through the code. You got to try it out a few times before you even know the structure of what you want, you know, especially in the small, like you might know your big application architecture kind of that you might want to already have set, maybe, maybe not. But when it comes down to the low level design, you oftentimes don't know what you need to do. And so the REPL is often the best way to get there the quickest. Yeah, it really lets you figure out just the basics of the process and your own way of thinking about it and modeling it. And then tests let you really start handling more and more cases, handling more edges, locking that design down in place, getting some validation around all of that. Maybe testing will cause you to also change the way you model it a little bit at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's later in the process, right? You have exploration early, testing later. Yeah, it's like you wanna you wanna you you wanna have the free form, the freedom to to change your mind and your direction when you're exploring. But then once you get settled into this is the way I think things should go, like our tracer bullet. Like we kind of understand the way that we want to get this done now. Because we understand where all the process all the parts are. And so now now we're putting forms around the concrete. We want the, we want we want to make sure that you know, that it stays in the same place because we want it to be able to be reliable. We want it to be able to run again and again and again without us having to come back in because of all these bugs and 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 pay attention to it. We want to move on to bigger and better things or, or maybe just different things. Right, right. Definitely get get the benefit of the testing is is for the long haul down the road. Yeah, yeah. But But the problem here is how do we how, how do we even start to unit test this i mean this entire this entire process is all about io it's all, it's getting stuff from the database it's grabbing things out of s3 it's you know it's it's running fmbank it's like literally the whole process is io so yeah i what guess do do? i guess we just I guess we just pick up our ball and go home. <laughs> there isn't really <laughs> anything to test, right? I mean, is there really anything to test? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all about, yeah, like I said, it's, it's the IO is the important thing, right? I mean, I guess we can just do the, uh, the typical, or not the typical, but the, the, the answer that we can always go to, which is give up, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is well, interesting, right? Because uh, it's not a bug if, if you call a system and it was down, Right, like that's the system's fault. So is that really our problem? Yeah, I mean, well, well, we could get like five computers and run the run the highlight creation on five computers, and there's a high chance at least one of them is going to succeed. So we can do a little bit of 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 multiple or parallelism. That would work, right? That would I wouldn't test it, but it sure (laughs) would make it more robust. Well, yeah, and you know, to I guess answer my own question. If a system's down, we have to deal with it. Right. And so what do we do to deal with it? Well, we write logic. <laughs> well, how do we test that logic, right? It's all wrapped up in the I.O. It's just all married together yeah. there. Exactly. Yeah. When the when when there's a when there's a failure, how do you how do you even know what code to write in there? Because I think yeah. last week it was we talked about when 
when there's a failure happening right now and you write the code to fix that failure and the failure goes away while you're writing the code, well, now the code that you wrote is not going to be test, not going to be even exercised, let alone, you know, let alone do you know if it's going to work correctly, but it's not even going to run. And so right. how do you, how do you even know what you need to know in order to, f- to figure out the failure? Like, right. Because back, back before we made this tracer bullet and automated it, we, we had insight into every step, right? Because we were running this process with a REPL. We would call something, we would assign it. Exactly. We'd use def to assign it to uh, basically a temporary variable there and a binding. You know, binding is more mm-hmm. correct, I guess. <laughs> uh, a binding there in our fiddle, and then we'd pass that in. And so we could kind of inspect this. And then by automating all these steps, we lost our ability to peer into the middle. Right. Yeah. It, because it, because all... it's just sort of this magical process that just happens end to end. And uh, it says, nope, nope, I got this. I'll come back with an answer. And then every now and again, it dies. And you're like, wait, what happened? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's, that's something actually a, a, one or two of our listeners have, have asked is, you know, great. REPL different development is all great for, for some of these, you know, edge, you know, pure things like making a request. But what happens if you're four steps into a process and that request fails? Well, are you, are you just supposed to log everything all the time so that you can see everything? It just like volumes and volumes of, of pretty printed data. Like, I guess that might work, but I don't know if I want to read that much data. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, not, I I'm, mean, not, I'm not a computer. I can't read data as well as the computer can. <laughs> I, I think, shouldn't, shouldn't you be running the Java, uh, what's, what's the Java inspection agent so that you're just capturing a full thread dump, you know, on a timer so yeah. that you can just open up your context at any time? <laughs> I oh, say yeah. this facetiously, but I actually worked on a project where somebody was doing this. <laughs> Always run your your code with a profiler attached. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were having samples. so much trouble. Right, they're having so much trouble. They were they just resorted to just taking these full snapshots, right? These full snapshots on a timer, so that they could, when, whenever the thing happened, they could be like, okay, now now let's go to the last snapshot before it died. What what did it say? What what was everything? You know, <laughs> what were the variables? Right. Yeah, and so this brings us into this kind of general question of like, how do we go about testing this? Uh, we've created this imperative, this imp- I almost said imperative monster. <laughs> Maybe that's too <laughs> long, but this imperative process. And well, we're in this purely functional language. I think we could do a little bit better. And so the process that we're going to use to pull this apart is should hopefully help help with our goals of making things a, a bit more pure, right? Exactly. I mean, the there is, if you look at it, I mean, we've talked about it several times. Like one of the things is like the pure request creation. Like that's something that we've... So there is pure logics in there in different places. But if you look between each IO step, there is there's like pure connective tissue that holds those things together. It's like a... It's the... It's the muscles of the monster instead of the bones or something. I don't know. Maybe that's not the right metaphor. But Right. But the, the you know the problem is the logic is buried with the IO in these leaf functions. And right. so the what what we have to do is is remove the messy stuff. Remove the IO or at, rather maybe flip that around. We remove the logic and leave just the IO by itself. 
right? We're, we, we, need to, we need to pull out the pure parts because when we have a pure function, it's wonderful for testing, right? We feed it with a bunch of different scenarios. We get a bunch of different answers out of it. We don't have to worry about spinning up the database for the test to run. We don't have to worry about provisioning the AWS cluster for the test to run. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I've been there. We just, it's, it's a hundred percent of function of the input. So we want, we want to pull these pure functions out and, and they're this pure logic, like you said, Nate is interspersed. And so we want to factor that out. And so we've noticed some patterns in our own doing of this over time. And so one of those patterns that mm-hmm. we've noticed is when you make an API call, you get a response back. And, and, and when you get that response back, that's your first chance to touch that data, that raw response. And so we found it very after useful. The to, yeah, right after the IO, the IO function, the, the HTTP request, let's say, or the database execute call. <laughs> uh, yeah, it runs, it hands you this data structure, often it has lots and lots and lots of stuff in it, right? If it's a JSON API, it's mountains of nested JSON. If it's a database, it might be rows and rows and, you know, of, of different data. And so we're going to call that the raw response. So you can write a function. We call this like ingestion transforms or input transforms, but it's basically an extraction, pure extraction function. It takes that raw thing and then returns us working data. This is a pure, this is a pure transform. So the working data is the data that we actually are going to care about. It's in, it's in the language, in the data model of our application that we're going to be working right. with at that point in time. Yeah. And I, I think, I think when it's tempting, when you are, when you come from the REPL and you're, you're, you're in the midst of what the, what the actual data is like coming back from the other systems, it's really tempting to take that and use that as your working data, use the request or use the, you know, the parse JSON body or the, the database records, use those as your core you know, as, as the working data in your application, but they're not appropriately formatted for you. They're appropriately formatted for whatever, wherever you got them from. And so it's important to create a transform between that and what your working data is, because there often is a huge mismatch between, obviously the purpose is different, but another thing is the weight is different. You often have a lot more data that comes in, in the raw that you don't need to work with. Like, you know, coming back from the MAM or coming back from the database, like there may be columns and stuff that are there that are super relevant to some other application, but you don't need it for we don't need it for this application. And so these these extractors are a good way to learn both about the data and about what our application needs because the only thing that comes out of that is the is the is the working data. You know, it's as you're as you're as you're watching a class in college, you don't write down every single thing that the professor says. You write down the things that are relevant to what you think you need to know. And so that's right. kind of what the working data is. It's like your crib sheet. Just, just right. what you need. Right. And, and if you don't create an explicit model of this, mm-hmm. you end up with sort of this ad hoc implicit model of this that starts looking like a lot of uh, update in, association, get in type stuff, right? Or, or uh, you, you end up with using Spectre so that you can like reach way down, you know, in a tree and get data. And, and, but that ends up kind of littered throughout. 
because because part of your process needed this little bit here, and then you have a right. big deep get in there, and then some other part of your process needed that data over there, and you had a big deep get in. So you still end up with extraction calls, but but now you don't really have a point of reference where you can go, what is the data that this application reasons on? And so by creating a an extractor function that does it, it pulls all of the parts that matter out in a single place and returns a map that has all of the things that matter for that object, that entity, then mm-hmm. you can then you can reason on that. You can scheme and check that. You can visualize that, whatever you need to do, right? It, it, it consolidates it all in that one place and gives you a thing that you need to go update when all of a sudden you begin to realize, oh, I need this other bit too. Yeah, and and so that, that that's kind of the other side of it is you do need to go update it when you figure out you do need a, a new bit of the source raw data, and but and 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 on the other side it keeps your working data very light, it keeps it just to what you need because if you use the raw working data, then there's this huge catalog of things that in your application you don't know what is relevant, and what is not. Like it's it's completely unknown. So when you have when you want to look at the, the whole point of this is to kind of get some context about what's actually happening. And so if you were to say, hey, there was an error getting the stuff from the database and it just goes, here's all of the raw data, well, now you have to do that translation in your head again. But if it goes, hey, here's the translated data, you can look at that data, which is much smaller, and we go, oh, oh, that's why it's because this this field is missing or this field has got a nail in it or something like that. So it helps us as humans be able to understand it because it's less information. Yeah, we've distilled out the sea of information into the to the handful, the cupful, <laughs> the uh, drinkable beverage size of the information that we can <laughs> consume. <laughs> we've gone from the uh, mountain spring to the bottled water. <laughs> and in this application, that information is going to be some information about the event itself that we got from the database. So like the event right. IDs and the team IDs and maybe some human readable labels. We're going to have some information about the clips that we get from the MAM. So we start with all kinds of information in the MAM, maybe, you know, the editor and who uploaded it and uh, what time zone they were in or whatever, right? We're going to distill it out into the information about the clips. We have our exclusion list, which is uh, information that we literally just invented whole cloth because we needed something. <laughs> and so those those are the bits of information that we're going to be working with in this application, right? And that's quite the subset of all the possible information that's available. Yeah. So now you have, you know, all, all of these little bits of information that you can actually print out or you can show when you're you know, uh, when there's a problem and you can know, oh, this is what the database got. This is what the BAM got, that kind of stuff. Right. Just the stuff that matters. Right. I, I mean, you. I guess you could always take the raw things and shove them off in an elastic search instance somewhere, you, you know, for massive debugging later, you know, and some really super sophisticated implementation. But we're not at that point yet. Right. We're just kind of at the point where we something goes wrong. We want to know, hey, what was the stuff that mattered that I actually reasoned about, you know? The parameters that matter. So that 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 is does help us a lot with kind of the initial data, we're, you know, the initial data that we're gathering together. But now, but what about like when we need to actually handle uh, a logic change? You know, like what do we do when there is things in the exclusion list? How do we, how do we even start handling or start testing the exclusion logic? We have the list of exclusions. We have the list of clip metadata. Um, 
there's a function there that I think took those, took one of those, and and it it knew what to do with it. But now we don't want to do that. We want to be able to try out the exclusion list. We want to be able to try different levels of like different things of like uh, sorry different. What what happens if the exclusion list is not in the clip list or you know like that kind of stuff? You want to do all these different tests. How do you go about that? Right, and we have logic for retrying that we maybe want to mm, test yeah. too. You know, or or the other one when we we figured out work we could skip. We don't need to download things again. So how do we start factoring that and representing that so that we can not how not how do we accomplish it, but how do we test it? That's the thing is because we want to make sure. The reason why we, I mean, a big reason why I like testing is because not only does it give you confidence about what your code does, is that when you make a change, you have confidence that the new code does the same thing, or at least does, satisfies those same parameters. Like, because what if you need to change the retry logic? You, you're changing from one library to a different library on deciding how to do it, you know? Well, you want to make sure that you are still doing retries without actually doing the retries, <laughs> the IO. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so that de- that sounds like a whole new interesting uh, line of exploration. A gate before the next IO. Yes. How do we know <laughs> if the gate is open or not? Something like that. True. I think we're going to have to defer this a little bit until our next episode. Absolutely. So, if you have any questions or anything you would like to tell us about uh, testing, are you a fan of of REPL-driven development and so much so that you exclude tests? Are you a fan of test-driven development so much that you're like, why would I ever want to try something out? I already have my logic, uh, uh, all my scenarios uh, nailed down. So, please let us know. Uh, Come into the Closure Design Dash podcast channel on Closure and Slack and chat with us. We would love to hear from you. Uh, or if you would like slower ways of communicating, uh, you can always tweet at us at closure design on x.com or send us an email at feedback at closure design.club. Those are, those are good too. Yeah. We'd love to hear from you. And if you would like to check out our past series, our past episodes in this series, if you would like to learn more about Nate and myself and what we think is cool, you can go to mm-hmm. closuredesign.club and find all the things for the podcast there. It is the homepage for the podcast. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.